Hi, we're from security. You're going to stop doing everything else you're doing and do what we say now. So, so they haven't adopted the whole DevOps firewall management thing, have they? We've always done it this way. So what would you say you do here? Or you want to do a podcast? Sure. Today is February 15th, 2015, and this is episode 106 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Happy Sunday evening to you, sir. Likewise, likewise. So uh, just a reminder, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So we have uh, we've got quite a lot of news to cover this week. Yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good news week. Absolutely. Better than, uh, better than it has been in quite some time. So the first thing that we'll just very briefly touch on is a report that came out of the PCI Council. And uh, this report basically says that they're going to be releasing PCI 3.1 imminently. They're, I don't think they've really given a time frame yet. And one of the requirements in that change is going to be that SSL, all versions of SSL are no longer considered safe for conducting or securing credit card transactions. Um, and, you know, I guess I've, I've heard that there may be some confusion, but, you know, of course, TLS, the, the implication there is that you should be using TLS, not SSL. So, I find it interesting because it's an out-of-cycle release from PCI. And as far as I know, it's the first time they've ever done this. I, yeah, I haven't heard one way or the other, but that is, uh, that is an interesting thing because they made a lot of, lot of hay about their, uh, their pretty rigid release cycle. So, yeah, I guess, you know, here's the other thing that, that I think about. This may not be the last time we have one of these sorts of major protocol problems. So if I'm in the world where I need to care heavily about PCI compliance and securing traffic around PCI, I might want to figure out a way that I can easily retrofit in the future because I've I've heard tell of you know a, a lot of embedded systems that are using SSL that are going to have to have hardware replaced oh, yeah. to truly meet this sort of requirement. And maybe we should be a little smarter about future proofing those devices. I think that's a really good point. Uh, you know, it's easier, much easier said than done. But, uh, you know, these sorts of protocols do age out over time. We've seen it with our hashes functions, our salting functions, our key lengths. These things do evolve as CPU time gets cheaper. So with that in mind, how do you think we should design this sort of functionality to easily rip and replace maybe, you know, kind of the bottom line there. Yeah. But I, th I think you, you hit on an interesting point and that is that there's a lot of technology out there that, you know, it's both at a consumer at a, particularly a small business level, but even components of enterprise equipment, uh, which is what I'll call disposable. You know, they're, they're not intended to really be, upgraded or or it's very unlikely that um you know the, the manufacturer may upgrade it and i'm thinking things like 
uh, you know, the lights out management cards and, and that sort of thing, which, you know, you, you may never see an upgrade. And so you have to ask the question, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, and maybe that's just the decision that manufacturers make. Maybe they say, hey, it's cheaper for us to replace it down the line than it is to make it upgradable in the field. And maybe that's a viable decision. Well, I mean, if you're a manufacturer, of course that's better because that involves your customer buying new <laughs> new stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, then maybe it's on the customer to discuss this with their, uh, their manufacturer. Well, uh, clearly it's not going to change unless the customers change the behavior of the manufacturers. So... Uh, anyway, uh, moving on to our, our first uh, major story. This one comes from The Guardian, and this is a fascinating story here. So the title is, Company Loses $17 Million in Email Scam. So there's this Omaha commodities trading company um, called Scholar, or Scholar Company. And uh, apparently it's a 120-year-old it's a company, pretty uh, you know, pretty well-established commodities trader, and wow, they got scammed pretty good. Uh, so some scammers apparently did a lot of homework about how this business or how this uh, organization did their business, who their uh, you know who their auditor was and whatnot. And essentially, the way this played out was the the fraudster was sending emails to the controller of the company using the uh, what appeared to be a personal email address of the CEO of the company saying that you know hey we're we're buying this company in China and I need your help to uh, you know to fund the transact or finance the transaction and uh, they the attacker had enough information about who the auditor uh, of the company was they were able to put this controller at ease. You know, basically, they were able to say, you know, you know, call call our auditor. They'll walk you through the steps. And they gave the phone number. Apparently, they the scam had it set up so that there was somebody, you know, answered the phone with the name of the actual auditor that facilitate or helped facilitate the uh, you know the instructions. So anyway, uh, they ended up stealing. Seventeen million dollars through three different transactions, and um, I guess at the end of the day, it looks like the controller is no longer an employee. Um, because, as I understand it, they actually told the controller to transfer this money to a bank account in China, and the controller thought he was doing what his boss yes. had asked him to do. And in fact, I think they told the boss or the, the fake email from the boss. Had said some long lines of this is very hush hush, so don't confirm this in in a you know some way, which in retrospect looks obviously very suspect, but at the time was more than sufficient to convince this controller to do this as a legitimate transaction. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm trying to find the uh, the exact quote. I think I think the uh, the alleged or the the fake CEO said something to the effect of you know if you. If you discuss this with anyone that's violating SEC rules or something to that effect, so you know, obviously, it was it was a really good social engineering, a really well played social engineering attack, and um, they they obviously did their homework. I gotta believe that 
you know, they had some inside knowledge of the organization. Now, whether they obtained that through, you know, open source intelligence gathering, you know, who knows how much they put out on LinkedIn or, or whether there was uh, malware in the, the administrative assistance computer, who knows, right? But they had, they knew, they knew a fair amount to, uh, to perpetrate this. So. so you're saying it clearly must have been a nation state. <laughs> Obviously, there could be no other explanation. I, I, I can't think of one. I mean, it's either North Korea, China, or or Iran, right? I think those are the well, well, Russia and Liechtenstein. I think are our, our usual suspects. That's true. That Albania, Albania. Yeah, good point. Good point. So, um, you know, this is a difficult one to guard against. Um. You know, again, it comes back down to, you know, maybe this is a place where training and, and awareness training can help, I guess. Um, you know, obviously, the first thing that stuck out to me is, you know, the emails were being uh, apparently coming from the CEO's personal address rather than his business email address. So that's, you know, potentially one, one, uh, red flag that, that, uh, they, they could have used, but you know, it's not a technical attack. Yeah. I think the, your best defense is something like this is business process, right? You know, some way saying that, you know, the only way we are going to do a business transaction of this size is through this sort of mechanism, uh, proactively saying that ahead of time. And if you get any other sort of request, no matter how legitimate, this is the process to confirm it, no matter what's said in the email. Right. And, you know, that's the only way I think you're, you're really going to, because in my mind, this is almost like a privileged insider attack yeah. in that, um, you know, well-intentioned or otherwise, it wasn't malicious, but it sure as heck was a privileged insider. And, what sort of controls are you putting around your privileged insider? And that is something that we we've talked about a lot on this show, but I don't think we do well as a as an industry right now. Is we just sort of trust them blindly in many ways, and and there's there's a lot of things that go into that. There's an, there's an ego issue that goes into that. There's a there's a you know an ease of getting work done issue that goes into that. Um, but at the end of the day. You're talking a $17 million plus loss because there wasn't a business control around transferring money out, and this one controller had privilege to do it. Yep. That's right. That's right. And so similar similar thing you could say, uh, abstracting that back to, I don't know, firewall auditing or firewall editing, right? You know, you got one admin who has the rights to make a rule without anybody else looking at it. Right. You got a risk point there. That's right. Uh, but that is so common. That is how the vast majority of companies do it. Yep. Absolutely. So anyway, that I thought that was an interesting uh, kind of departure from what we normally talk about. And it, like you said, it does point out some potential weakness that we should be paying attention to relative to process. So. And it goes back to. You know, social engineering is incredibly effective. Absolutely. All right. So our next story comes from the New York Times. And the title is, Bank Hackers Steal Millions via, via Malware. 
Hey boy, this is a uh, this is a pretty complicated story, and we actually have two uh, two sources for this. So the deal here is that, uh, according to this article, Kaspersky is about to release a report tomorrow. So why we're talking about it today is an interesting thing, uh, which basically says that a large number of global financial institutions were effectively robbed. Uh, through malware. So the the attackers got a malware footprint uh, in these financial institutions and then uh, what I would characterize as leveraged business process attacks against uh, these these institutions. And clearly they had a, a technical component to it. Some of it was attacks on ATMs and, you know, Obviously, they had to get the money out, so um, uh, it's kind of interesting. There's not a lot of detail specifically, but in the next source we have, which is a report from uh, Group IB and Fox IT, who apparently uh, wanted to one-up Kaspersky, I guess, because you know this report's out today and Kaspersky's report's not coming out till tomorrow. Uh, they go into a lot of detail about exactly what happened. Um, it's not exceedingly clear that it's the same uh, issue, but I, I feel pretty confident that it is. Uh, again, this started back in 2013, right? So apparently this has been going on for quite some time uh, before people realized what was happening. And the attackers used, a, I, I would say, a, a number of interesting although not necessarily surprising techniques to get into the front door, right? So they used a combination of spear phishing and also uh, what I would call, um, you know, rummaging through botnets. Uh, So one of the, I guess, really three different ways. One is obviously spear phishing, which I just said. They also approached some major botnet owners looking through their list of IP addresses for their intended targets. So basically, you know, are any of these uh, targets fin- uh, financial institutions? And then uh, they apparently also set up their own botnet for the purposes of finding uh, uh, financial institution hosts. And apparently, there's an allegation in here that the PHP.net hijack, which we talked about a long time ago, was actually perpetrated by these people um, to to get their... Uh, their malware out there. So, so anyway, um, lots of lots of technical detail in here. But effectively, what they were really after was implanting uh, enough malware in the environment to number one obtain administrative credentials, number two get a footprint on the organization's email server, and then number three to get a a, a footprint on the PCs of the people who do financial financial transactions, and, and as well as apparently administer the ATMs. Yes, exactly. And um, they, they used some techniques like um, you know remote access trojans that call back out. Uh, they used some kind of legitimate tools like uh, TeamViewer for their for their um, persistence 
And it looks like they, they also used a lot of, I guess, what I would call, you know, semi-legitimate things, uh, in addition to some custom malware, that uh, one of which is called a Nunek, I guess, uh, which packaged together some things like Mimikets and a couple of other tools that allowed them to steal passwords. But you know, it, ultimately, the whole point here was to enable the attackers to kind of end-to-end perpetrate a business process attack on the organization. So they were doing things like uh, inflating the um, the account values of a you know of a, of a particular account holder. Uh, the example they gave was if somebody had a thousand dollars in an account, they would use the permissions of a person who, person's computer they had hijacked to increase that to nine thousand dollars, and then they would cash out eight thousand dollars through one of their ATMs or through transferring the funds to another another bank account. Uh, but because they had access and control of their email system, which they said they had both, um, uh, they had evidence of both Microsoft Exchange and Lotus Notes being owned. Apparently they were equal opportunity uh, uh, attackers. Um, that tells me clearly their nation state, because if they put up with Lotus Notes, uh, that is hardcore. That is hardcore. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've you got to have military-level discipline to deal with Lotus Notes. No no comment. <laughs> so, uh, so, so in, in any event, um, they, they clearly spent an exceeding amount of time, uh, an extraordinary amount of time, doing their homework. They, there was a, a lot of reconnaissance that this group put in, you know, they kind of got into the environment. They, they established their foothold. They moved laterally, got control of the email server, um, got again onto these, uh, the workstations of key business people. And, you know, they, they used all of that access together to, you know, to, to number one, understand the control environment and then number two to bypass it. So if you know if if they if they knew that you know a particular uh, type of transaction would result in an email being sent to someone, you know they would cut it off. So it's um it's it's really a very, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of impressive. Another another uh, another aspect that I actually wanted to talk about was apparently they also were changing firewall rules. And yet. Just to jump ahead in the story, the way this was discovered was by a malfunctioning ATM. <laughs> That's right. Which led them to ask Kaspersky to come in to look at some malware. So all of this internal activity, all of this stuff going on, nobody noticed. I mean, the, the, their tactics were obviously highly effective. I mean, they, they spent... You know, again, they spent a lot of time to be very deliberate, very cautious, very careful. You know, this is the kind of thing where we we all or a lot of us think about you know this kind of attack being a possibility, but you know, we never we've never really thought that it actually happened or seen any evidence that it really happened. 
you know, beyond kind of quote, the nation state kind of thing. But here it is, right? And you have to wonder, how often is this stuff going on that we just don't hear about it? Because exactly like you said, they stumbled on it because of uh, of a stupid ATM. So, Well, and this, I think, is sort of getting minimal. Let me put this way. I think we're at the tip of the news iceberg on this one. I have seen some estimates of up to a billion dollars stolen through this campaign. Now, clearly, first reports are always suspect, and I'm not saying that that is the case. But this could end up being pretty big. Uh, There's some stuff apparently already floating around out there on the uh, financial industry ISAC. Uh, There's some other stuff out there that that apparently the FBI has been briefed. Uh, and some other Secret Service folks have been briefed, and apparently some U.S. banks may be involved. But these guys were incredibly patient and incredibly diligent in achieving the access they needed, and it was apparently very, very widespread. And this is the kind of stuff that we, you know, we harp on this a lot. But any sort of internal monitoring, if you're not looking for these sorts of weird internal activities, profiling uh, of, of your privileged users and what is normal behavior, looking for changes that weren't authorized, you're missing the way that most of these guys were running around laterally internally. Right. Absolutely. And and this is – the problem is that the vast majority of companies are in that same boat. They are not assuming breaches and they're not looking for it. Right. And it's frustrating. <laughs> and you know, I, I think I think also in that assume breach mindset, you also need to take a take a at least some amount of, of a look at how dependent you are on pieces of technology that may also be compromised like your email system. True. If that is your control and you, you have this assumption that it is always you know, uncompromised. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, uh, I, look, I've been doing incident response stuff for a long time and in, there are certain circumstances where you don't want, you, you want to stay off of email, right? You want to, you want to only be on the phone and because you don't necessarily know, that someone isn't in your email system and that would tip that tip your hand that you're onto them or, or whatever. Um, but you know, I think, uh, this is much more pervasive than that. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't, uh, this is way beyond that. This is, you know, look at how your, how your control, your business process controls work and look to see if there's a, you know, a particular single point of, you know, for lack of a better word, right? Lack of, Lack of, or, sorry, a single point of failure that could, uh, you know, could be part of a compromise like this. So, you know, I, th- I think this is, like you said, this is going to be one we're probably going to be talking about for a while. I, you know, I only got this report today, and I have I've read it twice, and, and I'm still finding new stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we're definitely going to have to revisit this one as as we go, you know, as it as this particular story evolves. I, I can think of so many different things that, you know, at least based on retrospect, would have at least keyed them off. But I think once again, everybody's so busy just servicing requests 
and pushing packets that they are missing this sort of stuff. Right. And I, I something's got to change there. Yeah, I, I, I suspect if you're a bank or a financial institution, your regulator's probably going to be talking to you about this one. Okay, yeah, but then regulator comes in and says, you need to do something. Okay, what's here's, here's the problem with that in my mind. The regulator doesn't know your business model and your data and your business process well enough to give you procedural remediation. So it's more of a, what are you doing to stop this? And then it's the bank or financial institution showing to the regulator, well, we're doing X, Y, Z. And then it's how well did you convince the regulator that you're actually doing that? You tell the regulator we're doing X, Y, Z. Regulator says, prove it to me you're doing X, Y, Z. Okay, you're doing X, Y, Z. But is X, Y, Z effective? The regulator yeah. doesn't know. Right. That's right. And, and, and so it's really incumbent upon the internal people who know the process, who know the business procedures, who know where their data lies, to be more diligent and to push for real security, not just, hey, we're compliant and the regulator's happy and we're making money. Yeah. So, you know, there there is a there's an interesting implication here, right? Because if it's a billion dollars that was stolen, I don't know, what it, whatever whatever amount was stolen, right? I've, I've worked with banks. I've never worked for a bank. They don't really like it very much when at the end of the day, numbers don't line up. And so maybe they didn't detect this, right? But apparently this was going on for close to two years. And I, yeah. you know, I got to wonder, uh, you know, at some point, some numbers weren't balancing and or what the hell was going on there? Or maybe the way that they were, the bad guys were adjusting the numbers, like they said, was a method of abuse that were never considered by the bank. Well, I, that, that's a great point. I wonder if they there were also balance sheets or other financial statements that they were they were also adjusting. I mean, cause it, because I, I just got to I got to think that somebody somewhere in a bank would have found something not balancing. Well, the vast majority of the assets are digital. So if I go into an account, like the example in the story is. And it's got $1,000 in it. And I edit the account and say, nope, now you've got $9,000. And I transfer the $8,000 out back to my original $1,000. That $8,000 kind of came out of thin air in some ways, even though it came off the bank. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the internal banking regulations to be able to say, but maybe maybe these threat actors did. Uh, and given, given that they this apparently was impacting at least 300 300- global financial institutions. This particular group IB report is talking specifically about 50 Russian banks, but apparently there's quite a few um, more institutions involved than that. I mean, this sounded like quite a damn operation. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I... And, and you know, so so when we, by the way, I want to go back to the whole nation state thing. When we talk about, oh, it, you know, this thing was so complicated and so involved it had to be funded by a nation state. This 300 different institutions, and this is one damn complicated attack being replicated that many times. That's a lot of resources, my friend. 
Uh, yeah, and by the way, the news specifically calls out that this probably wasn't a nation state. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, so first of all, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the same comment I make when people say it is a nation state. How do you know? How do you know if it was or wasn't? I'm not, you know, because I'm always pounding on folks who say, oh, it was a nation state. Well, just to be fair, I'm going to pound on these guys for saying it was a nation state. Again, how do you know? Uh, you don't uh, most I'm of the time. I suspect they're going by motive, right? Well, I mean, they, they, right. They, they've got to be, right? I suppose, but yeah, it's like. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting off on that rant. I know, I know. Truther, of, you're a truther. Clearly, I am. Um, but all that being said, you would think that there would have been a control in the bank that would have picked this up. Absolutely. But clearly there wasn't. So, Or, or there wasn't a control that this group wasn't able to monkey with. I mean, you know, that, I think that's what it may come down to. Is that they, you know, they they spent so much reconnaissance time that they figured out what all those controls were, and they, you know, they messed with each so and every is one. It truly, a control if the bad guy can mess with it. That it, if, that's exactly my point. That's yeah. exactly my point. That, I, and I think that's a question we have to ask. You know, Do, are we putting too much trust in controls that can be monkeyed with? Exactly. Right. Well, I mean, in, in this case, obviously they were. And, you know, I, I suspect if you were to think about it, you know, pr- prior to this, you know, it, it, it would seem so outlandish as to, as to be written off as impossible. You know, okay, so you're going to tell me that somebody's going to compromise our network, they're going to take over control of our email system, they're going to be able to mediate, you know, what goes through our email, they're going to be able to watch what's happening on our, you know, on our, on our computers, they're going to know you know, what spreadsheets to edit and all that stuff. No, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. The flip side of this is you've now got some really well-trained potential employees you could hire who know your process and systems and can fit right into your organization and get things done for you. You're always a glass half full kind of guy, are you? I'm trying, man. I'm trying. <laughs> right. Well, we <sighs> we beat that one into the, into the ground. We will be talking about that one again, I'm sure. Yeah, to be continued, I'm sure. Uh, so our next story comes from Ars Technica. The title is Pwned in 7 Seconds. Hackers Use Flash and IE to Target Forbes Visitors. So uh, the deal here is that uh, anybody who goes to Forbes.com knows very well that the first thing you get when you go to Forbes is a little blank gray screen with a quote of the day and an advertisement. Well, somebody, apparently a nation state, um compromised the web server or web servers that serve up that uh that initial splash page and uh and yeah they they ultimately redirected you to a website uh that was serving an exploit kit that used uh, two zero days chained together one for flash and one for IE and what was even more interesting is that apparently and I haven't I haven't registered and proved that I am in the industry to download the technical details to find out, you know, exactly how they know this, but it was only targeting the defense sector and the financial sector. 
So okay. and I'm guessing that was probably based on IP address origination. Yeah, I, right. But I, I guess what I don't know is how they came to the conclusion that that targeting was being done. So. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you know, since like you, I didn't register to download it. I my my guess would be reverse engineering the malware. Well, I see. I don't think they had. Um, you know, they they wouldn't have had the exploit kit. So the 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 deal is that everybody was probably being redirected to the exploit kit, and the exploit kit was only you know sending you the uh, you know the exploit code if you were on an IP address or otherwise targeted as or identified right. as, as a, as a potential victim. Um, right. And so I, it's, I don't know if they got that, you know, the, the, the server side software. That's what I, I guess that's what I'm yeah, not, it could be. Yeah, I'm not sure about. I see what you're saying. But uh, either way, it's a fascinating waterhole type attack. But yet again, goes to show you know, this is a legitimate site. It's not, you know, it's not shady wares or pornography or something like that. It's Forbes.com. But again, if you, you know, I, they do link to a, uh, a website that has a little bit of detail. And if you look at exactly how this, uh, you know, the, this happened, it wasn't being served off directly off of the Forbes site. It took you to other sites. So there's an opportunity there, right? You know, you can, Hopefully through web filtering, uh, block it. I didn't. I haven't gone through and saw what those websites would have been classified as, and I certainly wouldn't have known at the time this was going on. But you know, eight zero days are real. You know, they're out there. Yep, and and this is stuff as well that how quickly you patch comes into play, and if you're not patching. What are you doing to mitigate that risk in the meantime? And, you know, I'm not saying this is a perfect solution, but in this particular case, I run an ad blocker that blocks that particular ad pop-up, but that's just luck in this right. case, right? Um, right. But, you know, the, more and more, that's that's looking like a really smart thing to do. Yeah, as long as the bad guys haven't whitelisted it like everybody else. <laughs> well, I I agree with you there. That's fair point. Fair point. So yeah, it is interesting. I, I don't I don't know exactly how else to to defend against that other than, you know, why are we still running Flash? Uh do we need Flash on our business machines? Right. Right. But you Amongst know I, other things? I think that I think there's a couple of things I want to point out. Number one is patching won't save your hide, right? Correct. And, and number two, antivirus won't save your hide. The you know, this was this would have worked on fully patched this exploit would have worked on fully patched systems with, you know, whatever AV you wanted to be running and it was mm-hmm. still gotten through. So, so I'd be curious, uh, how something like a whitelisting software would have done against this because it's a molesting flash and IE probably. Okay. Uh, I, you know, we have to try it and see, you know, something like a bit nine would have stopped this. I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it there's well, it, not, not a lot of discussion about what the actual payload was. No, but you know what's interesting is one of the one of the companies that is disclosing it in Vincia uh, makes technology that in essence assumes your browser is going to get popped and Flash is going to get popped and and you know kind of 
kind of virtualizes it and then relaunches that virtualized instance of the browser. So they're taking the approach of you can't stop it. Let's just contain it to a certain extent, which I don't disagree with. I'm not, I'm not endorsing Invincia, but I, I, the concept they're talking about, I think is valid. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how mature their technology truly is. They're still pretty new uh, and it's pretty tricky what they're trying to do. But that being said, you know, you can always look at, okay, who has, the financial motivation to release this report uh, to kind of get an idea what what might be uh, a valid defense against it. True, true. But you know, I, th- I think it is it is worth thinking about how you would protect against this. And you know, th- this kind of goes back to something I talk about all the time. You know, you unless you have some way that you can affirmatively assure yourself that. You, you know, you're you're not going to get hosed. You should do some kind of uh, separation. You know, don't don't be browsing the web from a system that you're managing your mainframe with or whatever. Why are you got to make life so difficult for these people, man? They're just trying to do their jobs. I know. And you're just getting in the way. I know. I know. I know. That's me, Mister No. So, uh, so moving on to our next story. This comes from CSO. And the title is Zero Days Last Up to Six Months for Some Malware. Uh, You know, I have a little heartburn calling malware zero day, but whatever. We'll we'll get past that, right? Let me just throw this out really quick. Full disclosure. Uh, Dumbala was involved with this report. I used to work for Dumbala many, many moons ago. So just for the record. Okay. All right. I I try to be transparent. No, good. That's good. That's good. So, um, so, you know, without, without, Going into Dombala, I mean, it's an interesting report that I think we all hopefully intuitively understand. So their their findings are that after one hour of discovery, uh, they're, they're saying that 70% of malware is not picked up by antivirus products. 24 hours later, uh, it only misses 30, antivirus only misses 34%. That drops down to 28% after a week. Uh, after a month, seven percent was still missed, and it took an it took six months to get to a hundred percent. Which, you know, that I, I I'm actually surprised that you get a hundred percent after six months. To be candid, yeah, I'm always I'm always surprised when someone goes to hundred percent. So this was against four AV vendors. My takeaway from this is that again, if you're relying upon AV as your only methodology you're going to get owned. Right. Right. You know, it's, uh, things aren't like they used to be, you know, the, the malware nowadays is, uh, they're, they're like little puppy mills, you know, they're, they're all being customized and you're, you know, you're not often getting the same thing that the guy down the street is. And, and so this is a really important, thing to understand that your antivirus is probably not going to save you. Yep. And we'll see, you know, that that industry is trying really hard to be more relevant and pivot and, you know, not be perceived as a waste of time to the organization, but it is a tough problem to, to solve. And the way fundamentally most AV solves it is limiting. Right. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're not going to get away from AV as much as people like to talk about it. At the end of the day, rightly or wrongly, compliance for many, many organizations still mandates AV. 
So yeah. that's just the way I, it's going to be. I'll, I'll go back on my soapbox for just a second and tell you how I why I think AV is still useful and 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 that I think portends what you should look for when you buy AV. To me, AV is not about you know the the differentiator between one AV product versus another is about it's not about whether it can catch you know 31 or 32% of new viruses because that's a that's a stupid metric to to compare against the use of antivirus is once i detect something in my network how fast will my vendor reverse engineer that sucker and get some definitions back to me now obviously that's going to depend on how big of a customer I am, how big of an agreement, what level of support do I have, and things like that. But, you know, keep in mind... But aren't you also basing that entire thing on the fact that you've caught a sample of the malware somewhere? Aha! An excellent observation. Thank you. Thank you. I try. <laughs> yes. Which, <laughs> which is... I mean, I can't understate... Or, you know, I can't overstate that, right? That is so important that you you're not getting the bang for your buck out of antivirus if you don't ha- if you're not also having some proactive capability looking for this stuff if your anti malware solution involves the, the the antivirus on your workstations i mean you're not you're not getting you're not doing what you need right you're not it's it's you you're you're beholden to this 34% after 24 hours. It's not going to do. But so many more. organizations still have this belief system that the antivirus is a proactive system to stop malware on, on the way in. And very few organizations, relatively speaking, I think have the maturity to go be doing their own malware analysis and forensics enough to be able to provide valid samples to an AV company. So that's a pretty sophisticated organization that is actually able to participate in that sort of turnaround, I would think. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, all I can say is in the absence of that, consider what you're paying for. I mean, what are you, you, you need to really take a deep look at what are you getting, what you pay for. And, and does that, does that change what you, what your priorities are when you buy antivirus? How about that? I think that's fair. I, it comes back down to what are you intending the tool to do for you? Yes. In many ways. Right. And all I'm saying is think critically about what it can do for you and how you're going to use it, how it can benefit you and uh, you know what the, what the value is. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I'm saying. I think that's fair. Anyway, uh, moving on to our last story. This is a kind of a whopper here. It's a follow-up to the Anthem breach. This is from Krebs on security, and the title is Anthem Breach May Have Started in April 2014. So this is a it's a it's a very long post, and I don't want to go through all the gory details, but effectively Krebs explores uh some pretty compelling what I would consider some pretty compelling uh, indicators that this was this attack was associated with a APT. I need to come up with some, you know, some music for APT uh, <laughs> called Deep Panda. 
and uh, they they go through a number of reasons why uh, why they believe that, including uh, the use of some uh, some Trojans and and uh, credential stealers that are also used in in other campaigns. Uh, but I think even more interesting in this story are some of the some of the other points about domain names. And so um, the way they came about this is a little convoluted, but basically there were in April, back in April of 2014, there was a website called WellPoint, but the L's were number ones, wellpoint.com. And by the way, Anthem used to be WellPoint, changed their name. And uh, uh, apparently this person named Rich Barger, who works for ThreatConnect, did some passive DNS research and, and if effectively found out what appears to be uh, whoever whoever was using WellPoint with ones instead of L's had kind of mirrored their WellPoint's uh, at least some of it some of their their external DNS infrastructure. So things like myhr.wellpoint.com and hrsolutions.wellpoint.com and extcitrix.wellpoint.com. And even more interesting is that uh, looking through VirusTotal apparently came up with a piece of malware which uh, was masquerading as a Cisc, uh, sorry, Citrix VPN piece of software that had the extcitrix.wellpoint.com with two ones. Uh, hard coded in it, so um, it, you know they they don't actually give a smoking gun on you know how those were actually used because uh, apparently they're you know they're long gone at this point. But oh, there's one more thing: the uh, that Citrix VPN, the fake Citrix VPN software, was signed using a certificate that apparently was also used um, known to have been used with other. Uh, software by that Deep Panda Chinese espionage group. Interesting. Q Q A P T music. But we're still sort of assuming this all still began with a phishing attack. Is what I surmise. Well, yeah. Well, you know they don't. Again, they don't really go into exactly. Yeah. You know, the, all they're saying here is that hey, it's kind of interesting. We see, you know, we, we're seeing this. And if, I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, that that would kind of indicate that it probably there was a phishing element to an attack. Whether that was an attack that resulted in what what happened, you know, don't really know. Uh, and then they go the, the the article goes on, and apparently that in the process of of doing this, they found some commonality with another attack, which I'm not even going to get into on this. Uh, this particular episode, but, um, you know, kind of an interesting um, new development, I think. And, you know, the, of course, everybody's, you know, nobody's talking about it that way, right? No, There's no no confirmation or anything about, about this. But, you know, I, what I wanted to talk about a little bit is the, the tactics, right? So assuming that you know what they're what what they're describing here is real, and maybe that is how it happened. You know, they're cl- clearly the intention was 
I think, to to run a phishing campaign against uh, WellPoint employees. Yeah, it clearly has that that feel. Or what about WellPoint uh, customers to a certain extent? Uh, obviously, some of this was more employee focused, but some of it could have gone against customers, depending. Well, that's a good point. That, that's a really good point. You know, things like my HR and HR solutions. Um, yeah, that's clearly internal. Well, you know, it may be, but you know, because, uh, well, I, I guess I don't know enough, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, so think about, you know, what would, you, how would you or your employees know if somebody was running a campaign like this against you? You know, it, I can kind of envision in my mind what this would have looked like. They, you know, somebody probably got a hold of some emails or something like that and replaced the links. And if you're not really paying attention pretty close, even if you hover over the hover over the link, you might not you might not recognize that those are two ones instead of two L's. Uh, so, so what do you do? You know, and the best I could come up with, by the way. And it's ugly. Is is um, you know whitelisting on on a, uh, on web access, but damn, that's or, that's or, that's painful. <laughs> or don't click on a link ever. Retype it. Which again, painful. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then there's that piece of malware that has you know the the uh, you know, I I guess I don't know specifically what that malware did, but. Uh, yeah. The Citrix VPN software. Um, I, I guess I don't have any any real um, silver bullets for this, other than you know if this, if this is something that that you're likely to be exposed to, you know you, you're going to have to think about different methods of of mitigation, and you know there's lots of email based new email-based services that can help mitigate some of this stuff. And, uh, but you know, there, again, there just isn't a, there isn't a silver bullet. I'm not convinced that user awareness is, is really going to help all that much here. Yeah. I would probably look at more anti-phishing type technologies. Right. Those that might be able to scan, you know, links in the emails, go and visit those websites, see what those websites are serving. Try to determine if they're malicious in some way. Right. Uh, you know, maybe something that also, some sort of sandbox technology that's looking at what's being sent down those links. Phishing works. We know it works. It's one of the most effective techniques. It's really tough to stop. Yeah. Yeah. It sure is. And, you know, this is clearly spear phishing taken to, uh, to almost an extreme by, by setting up such a you know such a a, a a pretty close mirror of the infrastructure of the the target company yeah so you know again there, there aren't any i wouldn't say there's any major revelations in this group but you know one of the points they bring out is that hey if this was in fact you know the deep panda chinese apt crew maybe the 80 million records that are alleged to have been lost weren't weren't really like lost to the to the bad cyber criminals, but it's probably a really bad thing if your name is among those people they were looking for. <laughs> Indeed. I'm thinking, uh, but you know, I, I, I started thinking a little bit about, 
uh, kind of the meta scale of this, you know, if at some point I do wonder if there is some strategic benefit to a foreign country having, you know, a pretty good mapping of personal data of all of a, all the citizens of a adversaries, you know, an ad- adversarial country. I can't come up with anything, right? It's a reach. I, yeah, I suppose. Uh, I mean, the best way I could equate this back to a nation state doing this, if they wanted to have an independent source of funding that couldn't be traced back to government coffers, go about it as a criminal organization first and do this sort of typical identity theft, sell it online, make some money. Right. So you're completely off book. That's probably what I would guess if this were a nation state. But I, it just as likely could be a large criminal syndicate uh, going after this uh, this information. Yeah. There, well, there was a um, there was another report that we don't I don't have a link to right now, which basically said that, that there was an allegation here that Boeing was a big customer of Anthem, and there you know they were after. They were after the employee information of Boeing, but, uh, you know... I, well, you know, that's viable. Uh, we saw this with the RSA hack, that they went after RSA to find vulnerabilities in RSA's two-factor solution to go after defense contractors. Right. So if you're going to go multi-step, yeah, that is that is plausible in my mind. Right. I, I, it's not just not very clear to me exactly what strategic benefit you have in, in, in that terms, because... I mean, there's everybody in the U.S. has had their data stolen and published, you know, eight times by now. I, I'm just not not exactly sure what you gain by getting yet another copy of 80 million people's, you know, names, social security numbers, dates of birth. Though <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one thing that's kind of interesting is instead of the default, um, you know, credit monitoring. Anthem apparently is doing something with identity theft protection services, which could be just a fancier name for credit monitoring. Uh, but it seems like they're trying to go beyond just simple credit monitoring with their "oops, we screwed up" sort of offering. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I have to say, and, and I, I, I feel, I don't know how I feel about this, but they seem to be responding to this better than a lot of companies do. Or have. Uh, well, my... I would hope by now that people have got a plan together before these things happen. Yeah. And they're learning from other people's mistakes. Good point. But, I mean, that's, again, assuming a whole lot of competent leadership. Good point. Good point. Well, you know, it, this is this uh, story is going to continue to develop for a while. Uh, I know there's a lot of lawsuits out there, and the state's attorney generals are apparently chomping at the bit because... Apparently, Anthem hasn't gone through the formal process of notifying the, you know, the, the state attorney generals. Although I'm not entirely sure what additional benefit comes to, you know, the 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 people who were breached by them doing that. So I think it's kind of like a, you know, saber rattling type thing. But you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if uh, you know if more detail comes out and we can, as a as a industry, learn from this. So anyway, that is uh that's the news. <laughs> so uh, at least all the news that we've decided to talk about today. Yeah, that's right. And uh you know, dinner's waiting, so <laughs> That's right. The important stuff now. Dinner. <laughs> <laughs>
That's right. Time for the important stuff. So anyway, uh, we, as always, we appreciate your time and uh, listening to us. If you have any thoughts or opinions or feedback, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. I, um, you know, I've, I, I've tried to keep up with it, but, uh, you know, now that we have more than about 40 listeners, you know, it's uh, getting a pretty swift volume of mail lately. So I, I try to keep up. Um, if you uh, if you like the show, give us a rating on on iTunes. That that helps us bump up the the rating. Um, by the way, there apparently is going to be a Jerry and Andy sighting on this week's episode of Paul Security Weekly. So uh, uh, really, no, nobody told me. <laughs> That's a bummer. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Uh, so, so that should be fun. Um, you know, especially for those people who only know us by our voice to all of a sudden be able to, well, that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. All of a sudden. Uh, uh, uh I have a, I have a face for podcasting. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I can relate. So, uh, you know what? Maybe we'll do like sock puppets in front of the webcam. <laughs> I love it. So, uh, that's the plan. I, I'm going to, I'll, I'll get my cat to sit in front of the, there you go the camera there you go i'm sure he'll stay for approximately one minute <laughs> and uh you know you can you can find the links to the stories we talked about on, at our website www.defensivesecurity.org we have now 105 previous episodes for your listening pleasure which should take you you know quite some time to get through at this point uh, hopefully there's some good stuff in there um, and uh, with that I think we will call it a night and talk to you again next week have a great week everyone thanks for listening take care bye I was stunned by, by the way that the bank hackers were not nation state you even said in the article they likely were not a nation state I, I, I didn't think you were allowed to even say that these days that's, <clears throat> that's um, heresy well, that that author will be canned, or that reporter. Whoever wrote that story, <laughs> totally, totally fired, blacklisted. You can go right for BuzzFeed. <laughs> Top ten articles for the rest of your life, son. <laughs> that doesn't work out. I'm sure TMZ needs somebody. I mean, you know, they've been dicking around with with uh, SSL since what was that October? I've been dicking around with your mom for years. Oh Jesus Christ. It's all about capturing Mindshare. That's not well written either. Man, you want it well written and immediate? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear to me that they banged that thing up pretty uh, in short order, so. I'm just not even going to bother. <sighs> Whatever. You're the and, FNG. Yeah, seriously. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.